2: Hello, I'm Steph and this is the Don't Buy Her Furs podcast and we're back. I'm recording this in the first week back to school. We've had some moments of loveliness over the summer, quite a few, um, as well as, you know, throat infections, biblical storms, bickering, eating meals that were a bit nutritionally lacking. And everyone's feet seem to have grown two sizes. Um, given it's that time of year, it seemed fitting to do a podcast episode on overwhelm. If I can take you back to the morning I recorded this interview, it was an absolute classic. Uh, I was wearing gym gear where I would planned to go on an early morning run, which slipped away when I got sucked into making three different breakfasts for my three kids like an idiot then um, packed lunches because I was packing them off to rugby camp, Doug was away and I needed to work which meant finding boots and gum shields that had not been seen since before the summer holidays and obviously they didn't fit and partway through all this I noticed that the food in the cat's bowl was mouldy, one of the kids must and put some milk in or something so I was washing their bowls with chaos and kids around me and then for reasons unknown I got the hoover out because I'd noticed every time I'd gone past them that the stairs were gross and then it wasn't charged the hoover so it died after two stairs, and it was just this catalogue of stuff, what my guest today calls the ticker tape, or time confetti, the kind of fracturing of time into lots of little bits, trying to do too many things all at once. Does that sound familiar? My guest today is Bridget Shorty, an award-winning journalist from the Washington Post, and now director of the Better Life Lab at New America, which is a think tank researching and trying to transform policy to advance gender equality. Basically Bridget is one very cool cat whose actual job is focused on equality and you're hearing this that I was quite excited to speak to her having read her book Overwhelmed in 2017 and I've quoted it frequently ever since because she explains what overwhelm feels like in a way that made me feel less alone why we feel it and it's based on research and historical fact and what's it what it's doing to us Um, and we also talk about how to get out of it and honestly I think I love her I try not to be really creepy with the guests on the podcast but she's just so impressive whilst also being relatable and I hope she won't mind me saying but she's 61 and absolutely still sees this as important where I think a lot of people come out of this rush hour phase and kind of dismiss it or forget what it felt like. So each generation is kind of starting again, trying to work it out. Um, This episode is sponsored by Natural Mat, who are makers of organic beds and mattresses handmade in Devon since 1999. There's more about them and a discount later in the episode. So let's get started with Bridget, as there is a lot to cover. I'm so excited to meet you, Bridget. Oh, it's great to meet you as well. So your book overwhelmed how to work love and play when no one has the time it came out nearly 10 years ago it did in 2014
3: it's when the when it first came out yeah yeah
2: so I read it in 2017 so at the time I had a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and I was pregnant with my third wow (laughs) but I was feeling really really overwhelmed and I was in my pregnancy I was trying to put things in place that would make that third baby not feel quite like the first two had because I had just felt overwhelmed, rage at my husband, guilt, all of the things. And so (laughs) one of the things I did, I was on holiday in Italy and I read your book and it was the clearest representation of how I felt that I'd ever read. And I was like gasping as I read it and shouting over at my husband, Doug, because you basically describe this mad phase that I know loads of the listeners will be in and that I'm still in but was particularly in at that point where there is so much going on I don't know if you want to start by explaining how that felt
3: (laughs) yeah gosh you know it was it was that was a while ago my kids are now 22 and 24 so we're in a (gasps) very very different phase yeah but at the time I think they were both under 10 and I was working for the Washington Post and I was trying to have this like big career, right? i had always wanted to be a journalist and always wanted to be a writer. And so here I was at the Washington Post and I was just drowning. And, you know, I was trying to be, you know, really good at my job, at my work, mm-hmm. you know, which is sort of like a calling, right? To be this writer. But at the same time, I really was driven to be a really great mother. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do all the things. I mean, I love my mom, but, you know, uh, I grew up in the era of, you know what they call actually now nicely they call it benign neglect. <laughs> you know that's actually an official term. And there was something beautiful about it. You know, like go out until the street lights come on. And she worked in the home. Obviously, she was a, a homemaker, so that is definitely work. It's Just unpaid work. But you know, she so she did She wasn't at a job. I don't know where she went. But like we would always be locked out after school, <laughs> and we just got really good at breaking the window and getting letting ourselves in. I you know. Sometimes I would reflect on that. It's like if I did that to my kids as a working mother, yep. I would be in jail. You know? It's just mm. so I, I, I just kept thinking about how I wanted to do it differently. I wanted to and also the standards seemed to be so much higher. And I just felt like I couldn't do anything right. I felt like I was never good enough at work. I felt like I could never do enough for my kids. I never had enough time forget sleeping. I don't know. I I Mm -hmm. must've gone on fumes of like four and five hours a night, you know, and the house was always a wreck. The laundry was never all folded. I called it like this low level radioactive waste of resentment at my husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And at the time he, he covers the military for uh, national public radio. He's also a journalist. And I really saw his career just soar. And mine was Mm -hmm. just kind of putzing along. I stayed on the Metro staff, so I wouldn't have to travel. And, you know, I'm assigned to go cover a parade. I mean, I don't want to diss that, but he's off like covering the war in Iraq Mm -hmm. and Afghanistan, which is sort of what I envisioned at one time that I would do like the big stories of the time. And I remember he sent me a photo of himself and he's in the war zone. He's literally staying in a container box with a cup of coffee. And, you know, I should have been scared, right? There's mortars and bombs and everything all around him. And I had the weirdest feeling. I felt jealous.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: and I felt jealous because all he had to do was wake up in the morning and go to work and just focus on work. Yeah. And he didn't have 5 million other things. And like the doctor's appointments and the filling out the Girl Scout form. And did you do this? And I forgot this. And oh my God, and I got to pay the taxes. And what about this? And just like the day-to-day stuff of what it takes to just live your life. It was just too much. And so- yeah, I put on 30 pounds. I had stress
2: eczema. I couldn't sleep. I mean, I was a wreck. I was mm. a wreck. But at the same time, being like, why can't I cope? Why can't I handle this? Because uh, everyone else is, which then oh, Well,
3: that's, that's true. It was really, you know, actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because I also felt very alone. Mm. I really felt like I was just, there was something, I was inadequate, that I was neurotic, that I wasn't smart enough, that I just didn't have time management skills, that there was something wrong with me. And that everybody else had it wired, you know. And this was just the beginning of social media. And you, oh my god, you'd go on people's media pages, and they have these like filtered, beautiful photos of family picnics. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. I didn't wash my hair
2: today, you know. It's like
3: I didn't take a shower. I can't even figure out how to do
2: that. Oh, it's five o'clock, and I haven't cleaned my teeth. It's that. It's that kind of yeah. But it felt very alone. Very, very alone. And that's why. I so wanted to talk to you because I've talked about the kind of overwhelm and the mental load and how Doug and I are attempting to do it because we both work quite a lot. And I always recommend your book because, first of all, it made me feel not not alone. It was like, oh, this is exactly how I feel. And you know that if you're reading one person feels like that, then there's others. So you're not on your own. Once you're further down the line, everyone gets a bit more honest maybe. So then you maybe realise you're not on your own. But when they're small... But I think that you describe it as contaminated time, like this mm-hmm. role overload, fragmented life. It's scattered. You're always behind. You're always late. And that feeling is, is so intense. Yeah. Where did that term come from? But And also from all your research, because I think it's really important to add, as you say, you're a writer, but. What I loved about the book is that it's research. There's fact in there. There's other people's views in there. There's expertise in there. So again, it's not just you going, I feel really overwhelmed and my partner doesn't help me enough. It's not, it's based on something. And that again, that gave me something. It gave me a a way of explaining how I felt to my husband as well.
3: Yeah. This was an accidental book. I didn't really want to write this book Mm. Um, because as you know, in journalism, writing about like quote unquote women's issues is like the third rail. That's just, you know, that is a fast track to kind of obscurity, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, nobody was covering this. Nobody was writing about it. Or if they were, they were writing what I call mommy train wreck books, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like you're saying, oh, I'm so overwhelmed. My husband doesn't help. Ah, and kind of like making fun of it. Fun of it, yeah. And, and I thought I didn't want to do that. And actually, this all started. Um, I was working at the Post and we were doing a, Kind of, like, this look at why people weren't reading the newspaper, particularly women. And I was appointed to this women readers committee mainly because I went up to the editor who was putting this commission together afterwards saying, Yeah, we don't understand why women don't read the paper. And I'm like, I can tell you why. <laughs> you you want to know what my morning is like? You know, <laughs> emptying the dishwasher, loading the dishwasher, getting the kids out the door. It's like, I, you know, I get into work and then some editor will say, Oh, did you read the story on page A3? I'm like, Oh my God, no, wow, what did yeah. they say? So you're already feeling behind. And he's like, oh, that's brilliant. I'm going to put you on this Women Readers Committee. And so when we showed up, it was like this confessional. None of us read the paper in the morning, you know? None of us had the time. Um, And so then we started thinking, well, you know, this is really more about time. And I bet, you know, there's Nielsen, uh, like how much time we spend watching TV. Maybe there's something that shows how busy women are. And so talk about the time you volunteer for something and it changes your life. I just said, hey, I don't know. I'll find so I went to Google, mother, women, busy, time, honest to God, that's all I did. And then up popped this whole area of research that I had not, I had never heard of before. Time use research, you know, sociologists, psychologists, economists all use these studies on like how we spend our time. Like the American Time Use Research Survey, there's one in the UK, you know, it's sort of like a newer science And so uh, I, funnily enough, I called like uh, this wonderful woman, her name was Suzanne Bianchi. And I think if she had answered my call, I would never have written this book, but she was too busy to talk to me. (laughs) So I went to the next person that showed up on Google. And again, nice guy, his name was John Robinson, and he was Mm. sort of the father of time use research. And he was kind of old school, Uh, an old guy. I said, you know, we're doing this research on why women aren't reading the paper and we figure they're too busy. And he just said, you're wrong. Women aren't busy. I'm just
2: smirking because at this point you're just like, oh, my God.
3: (laughs) Oh, I know. I wanted to, you know, know, exactly. Brain him or something. He said women have 30 hours of leisure a week. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have as much as men. Men have 40 hours. But women have more time for leisure now than they did, even though more, you know, 30 years ago, even though more of them are working in the marketplace. And it was one of those moments where just like, okay, data is not reflecting my life. I think I wanted to fall over in my chair or something. Yeah. I think I might have cursed a little bit, hopefully under my breath. And I just said, I don't know what you're effing talking about. I don't have 30 hours of leisure. Mm. And he literally said, Yes, you do. Come and do a time study with me and I will show you where your leisure is. And honest to God, you know, Steph, that is the only reason that I wrote this book, is that um I did the time you study with him. It took me six months because I would start keeping track of my time and then I'd forget. And then by (laughs) Wednesday, I had no idea what Tuesday was, you know, it was just a mess. And then he did, he found what he called 30 hours or 27 hours. And I called like 27 hours of bits and scraps of like garbage time, you know, 10 minutes here, five minutes here. I mean, nothing like you would think of as leisure. So to get to your point of what contaminated time is, that is a, that's a research term And what I love about it is because of the overwhelm and because there's all these expectations for what you should be and do, particularly as a woman, particularly as a mother, you could be on a bike ride, say with your family or a picnic and it looks like leisure. So it would be categorized as leisure, but in your head, you Mm. are worried. You're like, what are we going to have for dinner? Oh my God, my child's not happy in third grade. What am I going to do about that? You've just got this ticker tape of stuff that you have to do, that you have to worry about, that you have to think about. Oh, and I, what about the birthday present? Oh my God, I got to make sure that I. And that, and and they don't account
2: for. No one's accounted for that. Again, I remember it's the ticker tape, which obviously is the the kind of news stream going across the bottom of your screen that was another one of those I was like that's it that's what it feels like because it is constant even when you're trying really hard not to three in the morning it's like oh I didn't feel in that form oh Mabel's not happy in her class oh it's that
3: there's always always more to do the stuff of life the you know I don't I don't think I can take credit for the ticker tape that was just sort of like noticing it but what I did come up with was the term time confetti. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was like after my son. And now I remember it was his 11th birthday. So, yeah. And, um, you know, I had planned it. Like it was, you know, super busy. You know, you go over the top in the United States with kids' birthdays. It's it's It's, it's, nuts.
2: it's, it's, it's not far off here, to be honest. It's, just too, it's too much. So, yeah,
3: we'd done this extravagant birthday party. We'd had streamers with confetti and there was confetti all around. And I was sort of picking up the convetti, and I looked out in the back patio and my husband's sitting there smoking a cigar and I'm like (laughs) cleaning up. And I was just like, you know what? This is what my life feels like, Mm. like bits and scraps. And he's not a bad man, right? We we should add, it's not not.
2: not a bad man, but that we can come on to the kind of unconscious bias and the gender norms and all that stuff, but it's hard.
3: Yeah. It's really sad when you think about it. You know, Mm. it's just like time and attention are really our most precious resources, mm-hmm. what, we, what we pay attention to and how we control and choose what we do in our time. A lot of times people ask me at t- about time management. And it's like the best advice I've I ever got is that you can't manage time. Mm-hmm. But what you can manage are your expectations and priorities for what you do in time. And what's hard is with all of those, like you mentioned, unconscious biases and gender norms and expectations it is really hard to shut out that noise mm-hmm. and kind of figure out well what is it that's important to me well, and how am I going to make time for that and like just let the noise go let
2: the judgment go so it's the the psychologist Mihaly oh chick sent me hi yeah chick sent hi okay so there's a quote in the book that said it is very difficult for women to be able to live in the moment mm-hmm. and I think that is Massive because it means that you, uh, what I feel like the phase that I'm in is that I'm often, even when I'm doing the good stuff, like the things that I've been looking forward to, I'm not enjoying it because I'm thinking about the next thing that needs to get yeah. done or I'm yeah. worrying about something. And I'm really conscious of it, especially because at 42 you start to have, you know, your parents are getting older or, or you have friends who are getting diagnosed or people who are, di- you know, and you're like, I know I should be living in the moment. I know I should, but it's really hard to do because of all this other stuff. Um, and, and one of the things I was going to ask you about, so in the book you say, unbelievably, there's no, in history, there's no history of women playing yeah. because one of the, the areas you look at is how we need play as well as free time. We need play. And it made me think about the, you know, men's hobbies. That, And again, we're going to stereotypes and they are changing. And like, look at how women's football's massively changed in the last year or two. But yeah. you've got men's hobbies where you've got like fishing or golf, which takes a whole bloody day or right. those kind of really chunky things which are outside of the home compared to women's hobbies, which just don't. And you also say that research shows that daughters learn about leisure from their mothers yeah. and my mum. And again, amazing woman. But she used to say, if she sat down, she'd sort of, a couple of minutes in, she'd slap her thighs and say, well, this won't buy the baby a new bonnet. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. And I think it came, I that would have been that. from her mum, because we didn't wear bonnets, obviously. So that would have been something that came from her mum. And I, I was reading that, thinking about what you learn. And it's like, yeah, because sitting down is idle. Like,
3: yeah.
0: we should
2: be doing something. Right. And you're like, right. Jesus Christ, we're so tired. I, and is. that's what we've so learned.
3: Funny. Yes. And it's part of what's been sort of, you know, bequeathed to us through the, through the generations, really yeah. kind of the expectation of what it is to be a quote unquote good woman or a good mother. Yeah. It really comes from this caregiving ethic that a good woman is somebody who puts other people first, right. is self-sacrificial, you yeah. know, that you care for other people, that you're just like this gigantic blob of heart, you know, that you don't have an identity on mm-hmm. your own. And that's one of the difficulties It's because of course you have an identity of your own. It's just our societies haven't given us that personhood. I mean, frankly, that's what the feminist movement is really all about is Mm -hmm. like claiming the personhood of women. The humanity of being a full human being has been denied for women. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the things that struck me the most when I was doing research. First of all, as a field of of leisure research, I mean, like I had no idea (laughs) that people studied leisure. And secondly, I thought it was also a riot that there was nobody in the United States that really was a leisure researcher. That the best leisure research is done in Canada and in Europe. What does that tell you? You know, and that we don't value it sort of as a society. Mm-hmm. But that for women, there was this one study I read, and it blew my mind. Women around the globe—they like it didn't matter your age or your country or you know your race, your religion, any of the demographic differences—almost to a one women felt that they did not deserve leisure time on their own, that they had to earn it, you know, Mm -hmm. just like your mom slapping her thighs. It's Mm -hmm. like that you could only have free time if you got to the end of your to-do list, which which we all know (laughs) never ends, you know? So it's just like, it's sort of like you're on this treadmill and there's the carrot in front of you and you just keep running faster and faster and faster and you don't get any closer to that carrot. But that's what we've inherited. That's sort of the expectation. And to break that, frankly, is nothing short of revolutionary. It's Mm -hmm. really hard for women. And I think that's probably the most important thing that I want people to realize. It's hard. Don't beat yourself up for it. But it's going to
2: take practice and skill to learn how to play and be okay with it. And you say, like, uh, on the, all that basis, it's socially conditioned. It's not biological. So when we're sometimes yeah. taught that this this heart that you talk about and this serving is because we're women and we can multitask, that's all bullshit, basically. Because total bullshit. Total bullshit. <laughs> it's conditioned. And actually, that's what, again, with your book, because there's historical messaging throughout it you kind of go oh well that makes sense i mean like if there's no history of women playing and we were all, all it's all about servitude then that's where yeah. we've inherited that natural mat are the sponsors of this series makers of organic beds and mattresses since 1999 it's a great fit for us as anyone who follows me online will know that i bloom in love sleep i wish i had more of it and i bloom in love a nap as well so at natural Map, all of the key materials they use in their beds and mattresses come from natural, sustainable and renewable sources, even buying their organic wool from farms on their doorstep in the southwest. They make everything themselves by hand in their solar-powered Devon factory and in 2020 their sustainability efforts were rewarded with a Queen's Award for Sustainable Development. They also recently launched their Mattress for Life initiative, so when your Natural mat mattress reaches the end of its lifespan, you have three options, refurbish, recycle or donate, ensuring a natural Matt mattress never ends up in landfill. Don't Buy Her Flowers listeners can get 15% off their first natural mat order using the code DBHF15, either online or in their London, Devon or Cotswold showrooms. Hold
0: up.
1: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: And how has busyness become a badge of honor? Like, what's happened there? Yeah,
3: it's a really interesting thing. It's a weird phenomenon because it is sort of a more modern phenomenon. You know that there was a time that you showed your status by being idle, you know, the mm-hmm. idle rich. So it was sort of a status symbol to have leisure and to to do nothing. And then that really shifted and it's it's interesting kind of why it kind of started in the 1980s. And a lot of people think oh it's when we when we got like iPhones in our pockets and and it really was before that. But tech has a lot to do with it. You know, all of a sudden you had these boy geniuses and they would spend the night under their desk. And then like, then management books started to pick up on like, well, that's the way to do it. And it mm. kind of started this overworked trend, you know, because it used to be if you overworked, you basically gifted your time to the company. If that started to change in like the 1980s, you started to be rewarded, mm. you know, say, think about lawyers or, you know, financial consultants. The more time you put in, you know the more reward you got it definitely creates this kind of rushed busy culture but it also sort of takes this our work culture which is, which still is predicated on you know what what researchers would call the ideal worker that the person mm-hmm. who comes in early and stays late and is always available is the best worker and that person has no caregiving responsibilities you know so so that has really uh, been a huge barrier. That very powerful norm has been a barrier to women, but it's also been a barrier to men being more available to share that labor at home mm-hmm. because you know, there's also research that shows that they are much more punished than women when they try to work flexibly rather than just be the great dad every now and again and coach the team. If they regularly do the childcare pickup, uh, they are actually punished. They're seen as a lesser worker. So we've got systems that we really need to change, but that's difficult to overcome that that sense of busyness and look at me, I'm so important. But that busyness, uh, it creates what they call a tunneling that literally in your brain, when you kind of feel, it's called time scarcity and you're breathless and you're running around and you don't don't have enough time. And you know, so you're just kind of going to the next thing. Your brain literally kind of shuts down so you can only see the next thing. You can't see over the horizon. You can't see the bigger picture. And so that's why on those super busy days, you know, you're running from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. You answer your emails, you get to the end of the day and you feel like you've been really, really busy. You don't feel like you've been productive at all. Mm -hmm. And that I would say is sort of like that. I call that stupid work. That's modern work. And that's part of what then eats away at our time for our families, eats away at our time for leisure and really traps us in these very punishing gender
2: norms. I mean, the shift for women, obviously, in work is massive. And there's a paragraph in your book. So you say, when women began working in a man's world, their lives changed completely. Yet workplace cultures, government policies, and cultural attitudes, by and large, still act as though it is, or it should be, 1950 in middle America. Men work, women take care of home and hearth, Fathers provide a good mother is always available to her children, but obviously life isn't so sharply divided anymore. And until attitudes, however unconscious, catch up with the way we really live our lives, the overwhelm will swirl on. Nowhere is that disconnect between expectations and reality more apparent than when a woman has a child. And you talk about how the two of you had gone into your marriage and you were fairly equal, and I would say the same about us. And then a kid comes along, and it completely throws. (laughs) and you slip into these roles that we're all the roles we're talking about like you've got these kind of expectations and you suddenly you're doing it like I've said before that I used to make Doug sandwiches to take to work before we had children I was doing all these things and then when we had kids I was like this is ridiculous I'm mothering him (laughs) I'd started to do it in part of my role as wife or something
3: yeah yeah the good wife yeah it's so interesting because I was you know I was pretty militant you know it's like I want an equal partner You know, again, I love my parents, but they had a very traditional marriage. And my dad was sort of like, I say jump, you say how high. You know, he was Mm -hmm. a very kind of scary, (laughs) you know, very patriarchal, you know, kind of figure. And I didn't want that in my own life. And, you know, and you'll see in the book, you know, there was one very fateful Thanksgiving where I realized, I'm in that marriage. And, you know, my husband and I still talk about it. He sort of jokes, it's like, yeah, I'm the bad guy in your book. And I'm like, you know, you're really not. Well, what I learned is my own part in creating that Mm -hmm. and how my own expectations for what I thought I should do was part of it. Like, Mm -hmm. I felt like I should be the one to take the kids to the doctor. And if it wasn't me, I would just be consumed with guilt that I was a terrible mother. Yeah. I felt like I was the one that needed to, you know, kind of do everything that my mother did. So I was part of the problem too. And then also I had my standards. It's like, "Oh, you're, you know, you're doing it wrong," and I grab the baby back or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and there is a term for that too. It's called maternal gatekeeping. That mm-hmm. we kind of are part of what perpetuates this inequality. And it's part of what I want people to wake up for, because we need to be part of the solution too, mm-hmm. and let it go, you know? And so I tell people, you know, uh, you want gender equality at home. One of the best things you can do is make sure like early on that men take paid leave if they've got it. And then sadly in the United States, we don't have that. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have it, then create your own. So like a Saturday is daddy day and mom, you leave just leave. yeah. And dad, you figure out how to change diapers and you don't call when you don't know where something is. You know, you figure out how to load the dishwasher and you figure mm-hmm. out how to do it your way. One of the things that super surprised me, I was talking to Sarah Blaffer Hurdy, who is just like one of the most foremost experts in evolution and human evolution and motherhood and, you know, how we evolved as humans. And one of the things that she said is like, there is no such thing as the maternal instinct. That's another story Mm. that we've been told that what it really is, is time that you've had time to figure out what this cry means or what that means. And, you know, this look means they, means this, and women Mm. have had time because of our, you know, the way that we've set up society and expectations. And so what men need is time on their Mm. own to develop that same confidence and competence and sadly, because this is something that you can't legislate, <laughs> but this is where you know families can really do the work themselves. They you have, I think, changed.
2: you have to, do you? you? Have to work out like right for, let right, forget everyone else, forget all our expectations, forget how our parents did it, what our parents yeah. expect us to do it like, because that comes into it as well, the comments and everything else. And I think that's where, I mean, I'm just thinking, and it's. it's not with children but when we when you go on holiday and you go into a holiday house like you're in an Airbnb mm. never been there before and your partner and I know this isn't just my partner and I know it's lots of people's partners will go oh do you know where the spoons are or something yeah. and you're like yeah. I have never been in this house before I've been here as long as you But there's this (laughs) default, like, you'll know, and quite often you do because you've already looked at the kitchen and you've worked out where the spoons are. And that's a tiny example, but that's volume of stuff that we're thinking of and knowing. And you're right, unless they do it. Like, so I run a gift business and my warehouse is a couple of hours away and I go down there every week pretty much. And it's been really good for us because I am out. I am not here. So I can't Mm. empty the school bags and do the pickup and make sure the stuff sorted for the next day. And it hasn't always worked. There's been plenty of rows because the expectation from him was low. The expectation from me was high and we've had to get there. And also I think, all of this I suppose again like you said earlier about people not feeling bad about not getting there straight away like this has taken us quite a long time to get to even where we are now and we've been married for 17 years and I've got 12 year olds my oldest and we've had to really work it through and I, I was saying to Doug the other day I remember him probably five or so years ago saying um I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't be at home. I couldn't do like paternity leave. I couldn't do it. And I was like, well, why? And he was like, I wouldn't feel good about myself or well, something like that. Mm. And I, and at the time I didn't really have a comeback. I didn't know what to say, but we were talking about it more recently. I was like, why do you think that I could take that break yeah. from work and and not do anything else supposedly? And that be my only thing. And he's really worked it through because he's luckily has all this stuff that I'm doing. He reads the books, he's engaged in it. So mm-hmm. he's got there, but he was like, yeah, that's, that's a really shit thing to say, isn't it? I was like, yeah, because yeah. that was based on his bias, right. Or his unconscious bias that, like, well, he's a man and he should work and he'd feel ever so useless if he wasn't going to work. Cause like, yeah. so what do you think women feel like? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Some of that comes from
3: that. And it's part of what this next book is about, but this notion that the work of home and care isn't work, Yeah, you know, that it's somehow, yeah, like you do it out of the goodness of your heart or, you know, when I was looking at the leisure research, it was so, it just blew my mind that initially, you know, most of the, like, like in so many other fields, most of the time use researchers were men. So when they were coding time, they counted childcare as leisure because they weren't doing it and they their wives and partners were at home and they thought they were just having fun all day. So that just shows you
2: just mm. that disconnect. It's like mm. it is not leisure, it no. is work. In the book you mentioned there's some science about men and the change that happens to them when kids come and that they, they are wired for nurture. Yeah. I don't know if you can say a bit more about that. Well,
3: that's what was interesting. That was sort of when I was going deep into like, well, am I just am I a freak of nature? You know, that that I want to do something other than just like, you know, and I love my children and I yeah. love being a mom, but it's like that was was not the only thing I wanted to do in my life. And mm-hmm. was there something wrong with me? And that's when I went to see Sarah Bleffer-Hurdy at her walnut farm in Northern California. I had a fabulous day with her. And that started me down this road of like really, well, what are the stories that we tell ourselves and what are they based on? And that whole idea that women have this maternal instinct, if that's not true, well, what about men? And then you follow the science, and it's fascinating. We found out that men are also wired for nurture completely by accident. I think they were studying hormones for, I don't know, I don't know if it was Viagra or diabetes or something else. (laughs) Something, yeah. And I apologize, I don't remember off the top of my head, but they were looking for something else, and they shockingly found that men, their testosterone drops when they become fathers, that they also produce the prolactin, which is the same hormone that produces breast milk when they Mm -hmm. become fathers. They also have the same, you know, oxytocin, sort of the love hormone, fMRIs of brains when they look at babies, their brains light up in all of those same, you know, kind of nurture, connection, communication uh, pathways that women's do. You know, men are wired for nurture. And when you think about it, for like 98% of human history, we lived in these kind of hunter-gatherer bands where we all had to cooperate. It was very egalitarian. It wasn't just men going off and hunting and women foraging for food. Sometimes women hunted, sometimes men foraged, sometimes men watched the kids while the women went out and foraged. We are cooperative breeders, is what Mm -hmm. the evolutionary psychologists would call us, that we survive because we help each other, we cooperate with each other. And that means that we can and do all of those roles of work and care and home. Those are all how we survive. Those are all important functions and we all
2: can do them. And we've somehow, society has split it so that you've got the men doing one role and the women, well, are currently attempting to do all the others. But <laughs> when it comes to parenting, where has this kind of desire and drive to excel at parenting come from? You mentioned it earlier that you were oh. like trying to do it so well. Because have you seen the meme that went round about the 18 summers and I think it started in the US and it's about how you only have 18 summers with your children so they're very precious so you should make sure they count and make them really special and it, every year for the last like five years from around like May it starts up and I hate it <laughs> and I and I wrote about it for a magazine over in the UK and A lot of people hate it because it's just laden with guilt. It's all aimed at mothers, obviously. And it's about how precious your summers are because you've only got 18 of them with your children. And again, it's like, you. so you have to have a brilliant summer holiday. You have to have a magical summer holiday. It's like ah. you have to make it really count.
3: Like, oh,
2: oh that's exhausting. That just makes me exhausted to even think about it. Yeah. You know, and then
3: what do you do? Like for me, I had two weeks of vacation for, you know, like that's what most Americans get if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, one in four people in the United States have no paid vacation at all. You know, we're the only, we're one of the few that doesn't have any guarantee of paid vacation. So how are you supposed to feel when you don't even have vacation time, yeah. and like me, and you shove your kids in camps every which way, and you think yeah. that they're supposed to have these magical summers. Yeah, it's just, man, you just feel like, excuse my language, you feel like shit all the time, yeah. you know? Yeah. You're just polluted with guilt. Yeah. <laughs> it's nuts that the, the standards at work all ratcheted up in the 1980s. And also the standards for motherhood, what we expected mothers to be and do and to do alone also ratcheted up in the 80s. And I think a lot of it is clearly backlash against working mothers. You know, when you look at some of the headlines, it's just outrageous. There's a new book that's out and I can't seem to find it, but, you know, I've seen it. And every social ill, you can find a story that blames it on the fact that women are working in the marketplace. You know, oh, it's a working mothers. It's their fault. It's and it seeps in, in as
2: well, even though you it and does. I know that it's, that's, it's crap. It seeps yeah. in to you like, oh, so I, dare, I get it. So then I should do even more when I have yeah. got them.
3: Yes, because then the stereotype became mean, selfish, working mothers mm-hmm. that you care about your own career that you don't care about your children you're selfish you know and that same thing like leisure time has always been termed as like oh you're selfish you know that you know you need me time and it's always sort of we don't call men going out golfing oh you just need your me time and make fun of them but we've always made fun of women Mm -hmm. oh going to the spa you need your me time Mm -hmm. you know so we've denigrated women's time Eve Rodsky, who's a friend and author she talks Mm -hmm. about like we treat men's time like diamonds and women's time like sand, you know, that the men's time is so valuable and that ours is just, you know, meaningless that we have so much of it. And we don't. Women's time needs to be like diamonds, too. So all of that it became a way of trying to show that you weren't mean, selfish, that you did love your children. And it's exhausting because it's kind of a show right? Mm. Look at the birthday parties that you put on. It was sort of like you do it for your kids, but you also do it to show that you're not a mean, bad working mother, you know? So you're doing it somewhat to kind of push back against this kind of unspoken bias out there.
2: I think on the flip side as well, if you don't work, probably you feel that just as much where you need to prove that because you don't work and you now know that there's lots of women around that do work, you have to be even better as a mother and even more of a homemaker and even more present and everything else. So no one's winning again. it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and worked- I guess it,
3: the only thing I would say about that is they are working. We just don't yeah. treat it like work yeah. and they just don't get paid for their work, you know? So the, the mommy wars was so sad. Because instead of finding solidarity with each other, you know, and recognizing that all this work is valuable, you know, it was just, it was an easy way for the patriarchy to pit us against each other, you know, to kind of keep us kind of mired in judgment and pointing fingers. And a lot of it is because this is kind of new, women Mm -hmm, working mm -hmm. in the marketplace. I mean, women working for pay in the market is not new. There's research that shows that families needed women, like women were brewers, and you know all through you know medieval feudal times, women did work. But the difference was, whatever they earned, what came under the control of their husbands, their fathers, their brothers, or if they were enslaved, their masters. What's different is kind of starting in the kind of the masses in the 1970s that entered the workplace women were able to keep that and build independence and power. And that's really threatening. Mm -hmm. And so of course, you're going to come back as a backlash and say, well, you've got independence, you're bad, you know, you're threatening the patriarchy, you're bad. So you better like double down on being a good mother. So I think it's time to take a deep breath and let all that, excuse me, let that shit go. You Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. it's bad. You know, when you look at mental health for women, you look at women's health, you look at depression, anxiety, the inability to sleep, insomnia, it's really taking a toll on women.
2: I think that's one of the things with all of this, isn't it? It could be dismissed as women having a moan and, oh, we're so busy. And then you kind of go, no, because actually, if you look at it properly, the impact of that, and even like you have mentioned health, but even thinking of people I know who'll say something hurts, you know, like I've had this pain for a while, but because yeah. they're so busy and so overwhelmed, they haven't had it checked. And you're like. But that could be something more serious, and yeah. that, which is not to scare, but it's like, but if you're so busy and so overwhelmed that you can't look after yourself, because no one else is going to spot whether you've had this pain or whatever, the implications and the repercussions are so big. And I think similarly, I suppose, when it comes to marriage and relationships, what we're seeing, I would guess at the moment, is more women getting to a point where they're going, screw this, I'm out, because... They're seeing that there could be an alternative or they're doing all of this and it's miserable. Yeah, it's interesting. There's research that
3: shows that quite a significant share of divorces and breakups are initiated by women who are fed up with being expected to do it all at work and at home. The paid work and the unpaid work. And so much of it is, you know, and it's so funny you talk about the spoons. I remember um, (laughs) when my husband and I started to work on trying to figure out how we could share things we started really small, almost with like these little bitty experiments. You know, we, we kind of went on a long walk to try to figure out, well, what is our vision? What is it that we want? And kind of get clear on that again. Okay, this is our North Star. We really want to be equal partners. I really want you to have your own individual relationships with the kids mm-hmm. and know, I want you to know where their dentist is. I want you to know where their doctor is. Oh. I don't want to be the one in charge of it all. Yeah. And, and then we started to kind of try to divide things more fairly And the other thing that you have to do is like not rescue them. There is such a thing called learned helplessness. It's not something people are going to readily volunteer for. So if you've never had that expectation throughout history, you're not going to necessarily like, woohoo, yeah, I'm going to load the dishwasher today or I'm going to, you know, rake (laughs) the leaves up. You know, it has to be part of a kind of like this shared vision for what you want in your life and based on this sense of fairness. Uh, And so we, we did. I would empty the dishwasher in the mornings, and he would load. And if he didn't load the dishwasher, I wouldn't rescue him. And that's the other thing. It's like there was a study in the UK. I think I cite in the book that women spend three to five hours a week redoing chores that they think their partners have done badly, or you know that they've sort of like their learned
2: helplessness. Like, oh, I don't know how to. Is it weaponized incompetence that Laura Danger uses? Yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah. So stop doing that so what I did is I would take out my phone I would take a picture of all the dishes and I would text it to him and I would just say really so good.
2: I've done you know? this I find it quite satisfying to take pictures of like pants left on the floor yeah. shoes left in the middle of the kitchen I do that and I send them to Doug yeah because <laughs> they can't or, really argue with it it's like yeah. why do you think pots wash
3: themselves <laughs> I mean it's still an issue. There is a pan in the sink right now. I mean,
2: I've, I've got my shoulder in the
3: quite, of shoulder yeah. surgery. It's like I'm not doing it. I and think it's like, quite
2: reassuring to know that it's not necessarily perfect. For, no. You know that you haven't necessarily <laughs> reached utopia yet. I'm really excited to tell you about this sponsor. As not only have I bought this brand for my kids, but we stock them at Don't Buy Her Flowers. Blade and Rose create really eye-catching baby clothing founded by Amanda Peffer back in 2010 and inspired by her children calling about and the lack of interesting leggings in the market at the time. Her light bulb moment was to embrace the beautiful nappy bottom. They're really distinctive, often stripy, colourful and the leggings have a design on the bum. There's loads of cute animal ones, tractors, rockets, flowers and just kids' delicious legs in leggings. Mm -hmm. And their juicy nappy bum, chomp. They also wanted them to be soft and kind to children's delicate skin and wash really well and I can confirm there are unbelievably 18 grandchildren in our family so clothes go round and round the cousins and we've had pairs of blade and rose leggings go around a good few kids and they're still in good shape as well as leggings there are socks tops bibs accessories and unlike lots of kids clothing brands they're reasonably priced and don't buy her flowers. Listeners can get 15% off all full priced items. So just go to bladeandrose.co.uk and use the code don't buy her flowers 15%. That's one five and the percentage symbol at the end. <laughs> what would you say to men? Because I think this is a really good point. For men to be more equal at home, like for us to have a better equal share at home, it is asking them to do a load of the stuff that no one wants to do Mm -hmm. so Doug again came to that realization he was like in order for us to be equal in order for our marriage to work really and for for you to be happy and for me to be happy I have to do stuff that's less fun yeah (laughs) and that's quite a hard sell if that if someone hasn't got there themselves so what do you say to a man like why is this a good thing I think it's important to think about it as a process. It's not like
3: all of a sudden you're going to start doing things and then you know you get to utopia or whatever. It's life. It's a little bit at a time. And I think that what you do is you start with that vision. What is it that you want in your relationship? Mm -hmm. How do you want to feel? How do you want to feel about each other? Do you want your partner to be resentful and stressed and angry and busy all the time? And a lot of times people don't know how to talk about it. And so they get into these like, Kind of, like, the tango of nagging will you never, will you always, will I take out the trash? You don't notice what I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a lot of people don't realize is that women's tasks tend to be very time intensive all the time, you know, getting the kids out the door in time. Uh, men do tend to do tasks, but they're not time intensive, mowing the lawn once a week or taking the trash out once a week. It's not that day to day kind of like that just wears you down. And so, learning how to share that. One of my favorite stories that, that I think illustrates it is Jessica DeGroote is a friend and she runs Third Path Institute. And she's really, she helped coach Tom and I as we began to try to get this journey going uh, to be fairer partners. And she also went on the journey herself with her own partner. And they had decided that they would trade off days where somebody would cook and the other one would clean up the kitchen. And so her husband came in when she was kind of like really focused on working and asked, what do you want for dinner tonight? Because it was his night to cook dinner. And she kind of thought for a moment and she looked up and she said, to not have to think about it. You know, not my job, your job, you figure it out. And so I love that because what that does is that begins to kind of depollute or decontaminate your time mm-hmm. because you don't have as much stuff then running around the ticker tape. That's sort of what I try to do with my husband too, is like, you do this,
2: and I don't think about it. That plays to Eve Rodsky's fair play method, doesn't it? Yes, so it's the, the it conception, planning, and execution. The execution, yeah. And brilliant. this is one that, again, I got Doug to listen to. I mean, it makes me sound dreadful. Like, I just can't read this, read this, <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> but because I want our marriage to work. We listened to a bit, and it was Eve Rodsky talking about that conception, planning, execution. So Doug started doing the food shop. Mm -hmm. and he would do it but he would have missed half the stuff so we'd have no toilet roll or no washing powder or it was like kids need sandwiches this week for activity and you've got no bread or like he wasn't looking in the cupboard so he wasn't doing the what have we got what do we need what we're going to need this week and I was like that's most of the job going online and ticking ticking some boxes isn't it and we had to go back two steps to go through that because I didn't really know that that's what that was, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like, well, this is obvious to me, you know, look in the cupboard before you do the shopping. Yeah. And it took quite a few shops of just, there was one particularly bad one where we, three packets of mints, a bottle of red wine and a lemon turned up <laughs> <laughs> and a bag of rocket. And I think my oh, kids were like, had, oh, I've God. had a few of those jobs. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that's, that's not it, but that's a really good way of kind of breaking it down. It's like, unless you're doing all of those bits, if you're, the con- from conception planning to execution if you're just executing on it you're not doing the job and it does it's still in my head and I've still got to do all that thinking and that's the bit that you're trying to get rid of right you're trying to get rid of
3: the mental load and I think one way to think about it is again think about the work of home as work you know mm-hmm. would you do your job that way Mm. you know would you do frankly a half-assed job at your paid work no you'd figure out how well, to do it well and also and you need to take that same attitude to what you do at home
2: at home, home. I think it's like it's kind of disrespectful because it's Absolutely. almost like saying well this is so unimportant it took me five minutes I didn't have to think about it and exactly. it's not acknowledging what has gone into it which again leads to this resentment and rage because you're just like you don't need, you have no idea yeah. and you and you're pissing all over what I've been doing this whole time so Right. It's part of that long tradition of really, you know, women's work being very
3: undervalued and invisible. And it's not. It's incredibly valuable. And we need to make it more visible. You know, it's interesting. You were asking, though, about men. One of the things that I did, so I'm the director of the Better Life Lab, uh, Yeah, you know, once I left, once I wrote the book and I went back to the post and I was like, oh my God, we got to write about this in a really serious way. And they weren't interested. So I basically took my two page memo that I wrote to the editors and I took it to the think tank where I'd had my fellowship working on the book and they're like, let's do it. So I'm basically doing here what I thought I would be doing at the Washington Post. And we did this really big survey, um, Uh, you know, quantitative analysis, all of the stuff, really looking at men and their experiences and attitudes around care. And I thought what was so revelatory is, you know, there's a lot of yearning out there. We found that over like 80, 90% of men really wanted to share care equally. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. astounding. They wanted to do it. They valued it as much as their paid caregiving, Mm -hmm. but the majority felt that they couldn't do it because they'd be punished at work, Mm -hmm. or that their family would make fun of them, or they didn't know how. And so I think that that's sort of what we need to be thinking about within our own families. It's not that men, I mean, I think none of us are going to be like running to, you know, mop the floor. I think that's true. But I think that there is a yearning out there for a fuller life for people of all genders, you know, to have, you know, just like the subtitle of my book, Time for Meaningful Work time for family and care and connection Mm. and neighbors and knowing your neighbors and not being too busy to like take a walk in the evening. And then, you know, and time for play and that that's, that that's human. It's, it's, it's
2: not something that should be gendered. Connection. Well, also I think if the biggest cause of death in men in their forties is suicide, they're not there yet. Right. So something's not right. And I'm not, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's all about equality at home and all this stuff, but this all plays into it. And I think with, a lot of men don't have brilliant relationships with their fathers. So, I suppose one mm-hmm. of the things, one of the persuaders could be like, do you want your children to have a relationship with you that is more equal and more loving and more like all those things, which I think most men of my generation do want, actually. Yeah,
3: yeah they do. And it's interesting when you look at, you know, we've also done work on like, you know, paid leave and what happens when, you know, when people take it and how long should it be and when you look at some of the countries that have been really pioneering in trying to get men to take paid leave so that they can have time with not just newborn infants you know and, and set the family dynamics but you know care lasts a lifetime people have children with uh, disabilities who need who need time to care for them they mm-hmm. have aging loved ones they have sick loved ones you know we need to we need to care for ourselves you know mm-hmm. so this is something that we need throughout our lives but it's really fascinating that in the countries where men have that time, there's research that shows not only are they happier, not only do they have healthier relationships with their families, with their with their partners and their children, they live longer. So mm-hmm. they themselves are healthier. There's a real benefit to mm-hmm. having that fuller life and not being what so many men say. It's like, I don't want
2: to be a distant paycheck. I don't mm-hmm. want to be like my dad. Mm-hmm. There's a bit towards the end of the book where, uh, and it's a quote from Tara Brack, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it says, sometimes it's as if we're racing to the finish line our whole lives, skimming the surface and never dropping into life, as if life is a problem to be solved rather than a mystery mm. to be lived. And I just mm. thought
0: that's a yeah. real,
2: because I, and I, and I'm not just talking about myself. It's like all of my friends, all the women I talk to, it's this, this race for what though, because you're just yeah. trying to get through it. Yeah, I know. And I
3: love Atar Brock. I listen to her. She's a kind of a mindfulness teacher and, and this is another thing. It's a skill, it's a practice. You know, it's something to bring into your life. I don't think any of us humans are very good at that, dropping into the moment. I think that particularly now in our modern world, women especially, but all of us, we're we're skimming the surface, we're rushing along, and it takes effort to sink into the moment. And it also it recognizes that we need to live not for those big moments, not for the social media photo shoot, not for the big birthday parties, but that life is lived in those everyday ordinary moments and dropping into those. I end the book, you know, eating soup with my children and watching the rain. And that is still one of the most magical moments in my life Mm -hmm. because we dropped into the moment and that's always available to you.
0: Mm.
2: coming to the end like one of the things you say is that overwhelm isn't going to go away because of the world that we live in so it is mm-hmm. it's how you deal with it and and what you put in place so what are the key tools that people can do or the key things steps that people can make
3: yeah well I think the first and the most important one for many people is just being aware mm-hmm. you know starting to see the water that we're swimming in that was so powerful for me recognizing that you're not alone and that there's nothing wrong with you. That if you're feeling overwhelmed, there's reasons for it. You're kind of in this ocean and buffeted about by all sorts of currents that are not of your choosing. But what you can choose is sort of like where you decide to swim. You know, you can't change those currents necessarily. But if enough of us start swimming differently, then the currents will change. You mm-hmm. know, That is sort of up to us. But be aware, you know, take time to pause, you know, recognize what those pressures are. The research shows three deep breaths is enough to kind of calm your cortisol down and kind of bring you back into the moment. So it's not like you got to go to a cave and meditate for two years. You know, you can do some of these things right here and right now. Take three breaths and think about what's really important to me right now and find ways to put your time and attention on that day by day. One thing, you know, every morning I, well, I've got an injury, so I'm not running, but we're, we're walking. So my running partner and I will be like, what's your one thing today? Not your 50, one. And sometimes it's a paid work thing. Sometimes it's a kind of a a work thing that we've got to do at home or a kid thing we've got to do. And sometimes it's just like, you know, I just really want to have a fun day. I just want to do something fun. You know, and recognize that those three great arenas of life, work, love, and play, that we need time and space for all of those. Mm -hmm. And I I hate work-life balance because everybody seems to think we need to be balanced all the time. We're not. Mm -hmm. But if you look over the course of a week or over the course of a month or over the course of a year, can you make space for each of these important parts of ourselves? Put the timer on and do something that just gives you a, a feeling of joy and feel okay about it. Yeah, you, know, you have there, to give
2: yourself permission, don't you? Because of yeah. because of the unconscious bias and all these expectations, and a lot of it putting on ourselves as well as what we think society wants us to do. Yeah, yeah. you've hit the
3: you've hit the nail on the head. I I ran this project called the Time Hacker Project when I was still at the Washington Post, and we took people and they would write in what they really wanted to do with their time, and then we'd match them up with like a productivity coach or a time coach. And then I would write about like what they worked on. We'd give them 21 days and then come back and like kind of what their lessons were, what they did and what they learned. And it was fascinating. I learned all sorts of great tips and tricks, but the bottom line is that every single one of them, the first thing they had to do was give themselves permission that what they wanted to do was worth their time and attention. And once they
2: did, they made it happen. Mm, That's so interesting, especially when, It comes to women, isn't it? Yeah, we're not deserving of it, which is massive. To think that that's having those all those implications on like health, careers, like family, marriage, like (laughs) because we don't give ourselves that. Yeah, and
3: you do deserve it, and I think that's probably again that's sort of a mindset shift. Maybe the. The real distance here is in our own minds to give ourselves that recognition of full humanity. And you can stop listening to the voices, you know, in our heads, you know, that come down through the generations judging us and telling us we have to be a
2: certain way. And from a hope point of view, (laughs) because we need some, you're seeing these changes, but also with your kids. I'm really interested to see, to know if you can see how they are
3: Well, you know, um, you've got
2: a boy and a girl, right?
3: I've got a a boy and a girl and they're both, they're both lovely, lovely human beings. And my son is incredibly perceptive and sensitive and, you know, reads emotional cues really well. My daughter is just a firecracker. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) She does not take guff. They're both clear eyed. And I think they've both seen us struggle, but also really make an effort. And Mm. I think the main lesson is there is hope. It takes work and it takes, you know, persistence, but the payoff is that you feel better. Mm. The relationship is better. And then we all need to learn to drop into those moments. I think that's just human. That's just human
2: nature. I love it, Bridget. I'm giddy from talking to you because I just, on 2017, I first read your book and I just read it again recently before this. And it just, I think yours is the best thing I've read that's just completely hits the nail on the head. So thank you for talking to me. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much to Bridget. I was buzzing after this. Um, And also I just kept ticking over what she said, especially about women feeling that we don't deserve free time. We have to earn it. Uh, I know this from so many women, uh, they feel guilty all the bloody time. And what I love is that she's not just giving an opinion, it's based on research and experts and looks to understand why, which might help us to make actual changes. So yeah, have a read of her book, Overwhelmed. And also, like she says, let that shit go. We could see it as an act of rebellion not to feel guilty. We didn't discuss it, but in her book, she says that research shows that despite women doing more outside of the home, we actually spend more hours with our kids than previous generations, and yet we torture ourselves for not being enough, uh, which doesn't quite make sense. If you've enjoyed this episode or any episodes, please rate and review and subscribe, and then you'll be notified when we release a new episode. We have some crackers coming up on new mums, midlife, relationships, and sex, so, all the good stuff. Plus, there are loads of episodes to listen to if you're new to this podcast and you want to go back. And thank you again to Natural Map for sponsoring this episode. And I hope you have a good week. As Bridget said, breathe.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?